Hi, I'm Zachary Fall. I'm Nadia Cavell. And I'm Ben Weaver Hinks. And you're listening to Migrators, the podcast championing migrant creatives in the UK. Today, we speak with Laura Krasteva and Swayning Chung from the female, non-binary, and immigrant-led company Global Voices Theatre. Global Voices director Laura was born in Bulgaria and has since worked internationally as a producer, facilitator, and director. Originally from Malaysia, Connections producer Swayning is a theatre director, facilitator, and writer, today based in London. Laura and Swayning speak with us about their respective journeys in the arts, their company's efforts to amplify work by underrepresented global artists, and some of the key findings and aims of the migrants and theater movement. Thank you so much for joining us on Migratives today. We're very excited to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about why and how you set up your company, Global Voices, and how would you describe the ethos of the company and its main aims? I read on your website that you stated that making international work is radical at this time. Maybe you could expand a little bit on that when you describe what your company is about. Sure. So Global Voices Theatre is a female and non-binary immigrant-led theatre company. And we've got four main aims, which is to amplify theatre and performance work by underrepresented global artists, to decolonize local theatre structures, advocate for international artistic practices and contribute to the professional development of artists across borders. Mm-hmm. And the quote that you were referring to about how being international is increasingly radical. I said that back in 2018 on the back of when the Brexit kind of narrative and coverage was kind of very rife and it was on the back of years and years of hostile environment here in the UK, you know, policies that make immigrant lives specifically hard. It was on the back of my own experience of arriving in the country back in 2011 and the rhetoric around, you know, Bulgarians and Romanians coming in this country. Mm-hmm. And it was a thought around, you know, being radical means going to the heart, to the root of the problem, right? And also in the political sense, being radical is wanting to change course in a political discourse. And I think being international or transnational or cross-cultural, which are words and ideas that we use in our work to drive us, is that, is radical. Because it is increasingly difficult to think and work and make art in that way Mm. practically as well as kind of locally and bringing this kind of international ideas and ways of working in a theatre landscape that is quite closed and inwards looking in a country that is also starting to be even more inwards looking yeah Global Voices Theatre started as a one-off event back in 2018 at the Arcola Theatre in London, in Dalston. And it was a response, in a way, to an event that already existed that was a weekend of queer plays from around the world, readings of queer plays. And at the time I was working at the Arcola and there was a festival in which we wanted to program a sister event to celebrate female voices from around the world. And so we put it together quite fast. We read international plays from around the world. There were five and we read excerpts. And at the end of the event, both the creatives involved and the audiences asked, what next with these plays? And can we have more of this, please? And so putting our head together with uh, producer Robin Skyer, we said, well, why not go for it? 
and start Global Voices Theatre as a company that brings international work by underrepresented creatives. And you said that your company originated with an event and since you've gone on to host quite a few, can you tell us a little bit about how you go about curating these and how the reception has been so far? The way we curate those events for us from the beginning was very important to do that in collaboration with kind of lead curators that are from that community or that focus that the events have. Mm -hmm. So normally we do a global call out for plays Mm -hmm. that involves, you know, extensive desk research, network building, getting the call out out there and making sure that we receive a wide variety of plays and entries focusing on international creatives based outside of the UK who are either working in English and many are working in English as second, third language Mm -hmm. and or writers who are working in their mother tongue or third and fourth language that are not English and then are translated. So we kind of specialise in being able to bring those voices into the UK theatre ecology and support local creatives here who might be interested in that work or might be from those communities Mm. to take on those pieces of work and with the support of venues, producers, programmers, be able to put them on and generally kind of expand all of our knowledges of what theatre is and what kind of theatre exists outside the UK. Mm -hmm. With the curator, we put together a team of directors who will direct then excerpts Mm -hmm. and a team of readers that sometimes intersect So we we put a team together that reads the entries, select a long list, then we debate a short list, and the lead curator steers that conversation and the feel of the event to be able to present five or six excerpts that make sense as a whole to the audience and that perhaps paint a certain picture of that community or that focus or that geographical location. Mm -hmm. And we all come together in one day one D-Day, where (laughs) each team has three hours to rehearse about 15 minutes of each play. Oh, wow. This all happens the same day, and then in the evening we perform it. Okay. It's a very lively day, and we have the five excerpts, after which we have a break, and we then come together for a discussion with a panel that's invited, sometimes chaired by the curator, or another person who might bring another perspective or point of view. So that's, in a nutshell, how we curate the events. Wonderful. Reception has been, I think, pretty warm and enthusiastic over the two and a bit years that we have been doing it. We've sold out several of our events. Two years ago now, we became associate company at the Roundhouse and also worked with various collaborators like Border Crossings, the Awan Festival and Rich Mix. So all of this has been, I think, has been filling a kind of gap in the theatre mm. industry landscape that quite a few people, especially among migrant creatives, know, but we're not necessarily formalising beyond like one-off productions, mm. but we are looking at it as a sort of like having a range based on the themes that Laura was describing. So you could, mm-hmm. you could really see like the, I think the diversity of perspectives even within each community. Right. And I think the discussion panel at the end of the live events, which we brought in the theater makers, but also like activists, academics, all kinds of people from the community to both respond to the events, 
but also to give audiences an opportunity to have a dialogue about what they've just experienced. This is usually like my favorite part of um, the night yeah. because then you can see the takeaways that the audience members mm. have had. And a lot of our audience are usually like the other people from the community itself as well as industry. And a lot of times there's a lot of responses that go, oh, like we've not really seen this here before or we very rarely seen like our languages being spoken on stage and from yeah. industry it's always a case of like oh like oh, we've not really like seen these stories on British stages either so it's a really good way to sort of give them a taster of what other alternate theatre forms can be as well yeah and hmm. some of the pieces that we showcase first at our reading events have gone on to be developed elsewhere like Madeline Syed's Where We Belong went on to be performed by her at the Sam Wanamaker Theatre later on. So there's been some pretty great like continuity and legacy as well. Fantastic. That all sounds really wonderful. You mentioned that you are now the associate company to the Roundhouse, which is really exciting. Can you tell us a bit about how this partnership came about and what it involves? So being associate company at the Roundhouse was really exciting for us because it really allowed us to kind of step up and feel supported and seen. It came at a point where we had done our first four or five events. And as Zunin mentioned before, you know, they were selling out. It was a really great momentum. We had had support from the Arts Council and Malu Ansaldo, who was then the programmer at the Roundhouse, I think, saw that and was developing at the same time what these associate artists mean for the roundhouse. So it was a really great intersection for us to come under the roundhouse roof. So we did two events with them as part of our associateship, which was first the Global Black Voices and then Global Latin American Voices. And they were really significant in being able to attract interest of or the programmers and producers, obviously having, you know, the backing of the roundhouse mm. in name, but also in some resources was quite key to be able to kind of progress. And with the roundhouse, we were going to have our first season of work, which mm. is kind of building on those events to be able to present a full length reading and mm. be able to invite for the first time one of the writers to come to the UK and do some workshops. And guess what happened? Mm, let me guess. Let me guess. <laughs> <laughs> so their support was quite key to be able to leverage all the support. And, you know, we were supported by the Language Act small grants as well. And it was just a really key associateship to bring us to the next level, which mm. perhaps because of the pandemic, we're still in the process of achieving, I guess. You also created the anti-school as a response to the existing drama education structure and as a way to promote non-hierarchical learning. So how did this come about and, and what courses have you had on offer so far? I'm very passionate about the anti-school because I have never trained in theatre, right? I've never formally learned about being a theatre maker or how to produce, direct, act, you know, not, none of this. So as someone who's quite self-taught, I'm always looking for places where I can upskill myself on affordable ways of learning. So that's one thing. The second thing is I came across the anti-university movement back in the 70s. I read about it and I loved their approach to learning and kind of dismantling the hierarchies in universities. Mm -hmm. and saying, look, we're all 
teachers and students and there is perhaps a better, more holistic way to learn from each other rather than in a pyramidal structure, right? So that's a second thing. And then the third thing was we had access, we still have access to amazing creatives from around the world who are from historically excluded backgrounds, people who are not your average teachers in drama schools here in this country and who have wealth of knowledge that comes both from their ancestry as well as the way they work as well as, you know, the work that they're currently doing. So we were like, how can we create a space where these three elements can come together and we can learn from each other in a different way and make theatre in a different way. And so we created the anti-school at a time where in the UK there was a lot of people coming out to say drama school experience is not good, this has happened, racism, Mm. there are gaps, the curriculum is a particular specific way and that opened up a space to rethink what theatre education could be and as an independent company what we could do is open that alternative space and figure it out in a co-creative way with other creatives. What do you want to learn? How do you want to teach? And how can we come together to do that? We completed the first series of our workshops very recently in December of 2020 with the help of the Language X small grants that Laura mentioned earlier. And this was facilitated by Franz Louis Benson, who is a Haitian American writer that we had previously worked with on Global Black Voices. Mm-hmm. So we presented one of her plays at the time. And in our COVID interrupted season that we were going to do in 2020, she was the writer that we were in conversation with to have the international residency here in London in order to develop her play to a full production with a UK company. Mm -hmm. And we were really interested in her ideas around historical plays and kind of writing yourself back into history, as well as writing the histories that we don't often get to see. So we had a lot of conversations with her about what our collaboration can look like, both with the idea of the anti-school as well as with her wider work and how we can keep engaging with her. And Mm -hmm. we also were having a lot of brainstorming sessions about what we thought drama schools were failing to teach and what may be useful for participants to learn that they may not necessarily be able to access at drama schools or at any ordinary UK workshop. For instance, you can get like Stasovsky exercises or Mindsnet exercise anywhere, but what are things that participants mm-hmm. may be looking for that you can't get anywhere else? And what we came up with together with Franz Luz was the workshop called Historical Drama and Social Activism. And it essentially is anchored in how people can write historical plays that may be revisionistic or may be subversive in their own ways and essentially claim back those narratives by writing it themselves. So we had, for this first series of workshops, almost 20 students. They were of all ages and were located all over the world. Some people were calling in from India, from America, in all kinds of time zones. So it was really appreciated. Wonderful. I think some someone in Singapore was calling in at like 2 a.m. in the morning as well to, <laughs> to learn with us. So wow. yeah, it's really humbling to see people who are so hungry for that kind of knowledge. And also because like, As someone who is still essentially a foreigner in the UK, I'm really passionate about being able to open up these opportunities to people everywhere so that like location isn't something that is a barrier to them. Like a lot of opportunities are London-based as well and the rest of the UK Mm -hmm. find it difficult to travel in and access that. So Mm -hmm. because it was on Zoom and it was available to anyone who 
wants to be awake and coherent in their time zone to do it. It was also pay what you can. So participants right. could pay like anything they like or nothing if they like as well. And if they can't afford it. So that was like, these were some of the ways that we looked to um, remove access barriers. We also had captioning as well. Essentially, we were hoping to be able to give as many people as possible the opportunity to learn and to essentially pair the learning of um, skills and technique with an articulation of their artistic position as a storyteller. Because mm-hmm. that's also an aspect, I think, of the anti-school that we try and integrate and we don't see reflected very strongly in drama schools. Like, what are the stories you as an artist are telling and why you tell them? Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's part of our learning as well. Hmm. Right. I do want to ask a little bit about what inspired you to do the anti-school. What are the sort of stories or responses that you got from people who have attended drama school? Maybe... Obviously, there might be quite a few, but is there one or two that maybe you'd want to mention as symptomatic of the problems that exist in the current structure here in the UK? Well, I I did attend drama school in the UK, not as an actor, but just as a theatre practitioner on the MA program at RADA. And I think there's a lot. I can go into it for quite a while. but, uh, (laughs) But I think probably a couple of the key ones are... Firstly, teaching a very specific way of making theatre mm-hmm. and sort of framing that as the only way of making theatre or sort right. of like a right way of making theatre, a, a way that is um, acceptable of making theatre. And this immediately closes the door on a lot of alternate ways of making theatre. And you already see this in various UK-based genres like devising companies, physical theatre, people who integrate things like circus, musical theatre, opera. These are all, in a way they aren't considered theatre the same way that straight play theatre necessarily is. Mm-hmm. And I think there can be a lot of conversation around how these forms inform and support and can be married with each other that drama schools don't necessarily structure in those ways. Yeah. And a lot of the learning, the history of theatre that we learn in drama school also comes from a very Eurocentric, Anglophone way of approaching it. Mm. You know, starting from the Greeks and going through like Shakespeare, a lot of Shakespeare. Oh my God, so much Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we love him, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Restoration, 20th century, great American playwrights. Like there are some key people that we always hit. And I think Mm-mm. there are loads and loads of other people that we never hit and that students, especially younger drama school students, they are still very easily influenced and don't really yeah. know where to look for those stories, therefore are unable to look for them or then internalize that this is what theatre looks like. And I think that cuts off a lot of possibilities and opportunities for them to tell stories in the future as well. And in a way, that also then limits the UK theatre landscape in itself because then the richness and the variety of stories that mm. we present also becomes really restricted as a result. Yeah, mm. it's a very heavy brick, that canon, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the last thing I think which we are working on with migrants in theatre is actor training, especially to do with things like accents and how you present yourself for mm. like for actors. And with international world and with speaking different kinds of Englishes as well as speaking different mm-hmm. languages on stage, this is something that is still very contentious and not truly accepted or understood properly in the UK theatre stream. 
Oh, yeah. I can't tell you how much that resonates. You know, I was told at drama school as an actor, you know, you won't work here. You won't work here with the way you sound. It's extremely rigid. And, you know, at some point I was like, well, then what am I doing in this school if I won't work here? You know, why did you accept me? So it felt very one way, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I was going to add to Zwining's point about, for me, it's also as an outsider who, bear in mind, has been through university paying really high fees to Mm. be able to spend one year learning in London, which is how I arrived here. So yes, outsider to drama school, but not outside of the higher education system. Mm. And this is essentially a conveyor belt. This is why we call the creative industries, right? It's an industry. And Zunin talked really well about what happens inside. Mm-hmm. But if you forget that for a sec, which is monumentous, but if you forget that for a second, is looking at the system and how it works as a conveyor belt of you come, you give your money away, you go through a machine, you come out the other way and you're conditioned right? Mm -hmm. And the question of who gets to access that conditioning is also massive, Mm -hmm. especially after, you know, hiking up the fees because theatre also exists in universities, not just drama schools, right? Mm -hmm. Who can access that education and therefore the networks and the diplomas and the kudos and being seen by an agent and being able to, you know, live through your professional life as a cohort of students you can see you know the big UK companies many 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 of them started up at university or at drama school as people mm-hmm. that worked and practitioned together because they had the space and the time to do it so yeah. it's very difficult to exist outside of that system because it is so systematic and so in a way it's a paradigm so it's it's quite totalitarian so you are a little bit condemned to the margins if you're a dissenting voice inside the system or if you are outside of it and trying to kind of provide alternatives because you don't have the resources that those schools and those universities have right so you are you're perpetually in the margin pushing in and it's it's just very difficult and it's fundamental that there is people inside that system that question it and bring people in and they are brilliant individuals, both at management level as well as teachers specifically, who are really trying to do that. And there's also, very importantly, people outside that system that are questioning and providing alternative spaces. And I wish there was more support for that alternative education, you know, and I haven't cracked that nut yet. Like, who supports that and whose interest is there to be an alternative way of seeing and rehearsing the world? It's a big question, right? Mm. Also for lifelong learning, because I think that's something that you will keep absorbing and learning new techniques for making theatre and for everything throughout life. But so many of the opportunities as well are very age-limited in theatre in the UK, yeah, which necessarily shuts out a lot of people mm. yeah. who are like above 25, above 30, above 18. However arbitrary, we are determining the mark of an emerging theatre maker. Yeah. yeah, it feels like actors in particular and all creatives to varying degree going through the sort of educational system in this country are expected to like deliver the work of the canon and the work of the tastemakers and fit to that mold. Right. And the reality, I think we're seeing it particularly over the last year, is that when that work dries up, the only thing they can do is create their own work. But of course, that relies on resources and a certain degree of acceptance from the institutions that exist to 
profile and platform that work. Have you found an, any increasing appetite lately from institutions and from those who have access to the resources to support that kind of work? I mean, this kind of almost like our, as Global Voices, our trajectory in the first two years, which was very positive. And at the same time, it was positive because it was rehearsed reading, event, kind of almost non-committal. Oh, yeah, we will support this, this call. But when it comes to producing the plays and co-producing and putting money where your mouth is, very few people were coming through. And at the time, I guess we were thinking, or at least I was thinking, well, this is okay because we're just starting. So we need to establish those relationships, build those bridges. However, having spent like over a year doing a lot more advocacy for culture in general, as me as an individual, as well as an artist, I think that perhaps there's a bit of a will but there's definitely a lot of still a lot of prejudice and still a lot of aversion to risk mm. that for organizations and venues is very tied in how they're funded and how much of their income is tied into ticket sales they're not subsidized enough perhaps to take those risks mm-hmm. and yeah. the thing that we hear very often and with our migrants in theater perhaps the things that we hear all the time is Oh, we don't know if the audiences are going to like this. So it's risky. It's risky work Mm. on one side. And on the other, well, where is this work at a mid-scale level, which was something that came up recently? There isn't any. Mm. And I think these are two very problematic points of view because on one side, how can you like something you've never seen? Mm-hmm. And who is responsible for showing people things they've never seen, you know? Yeah. yeah. And on the other side, well, of course, there isn't going to be any mid-scale work because there's a problem with the pipeline. The pipeline is blocked at the beginning. If we go back to our discussion around drama school, who is able to learn? Who is able to make the work? Who has the financial backing of their families or of their like historical wealth and their privilege to be able to make work and put it out there? Yeah. Who knows who? How does it work? Who is on boards? You know, there's a certain type of people, right? And there's a, a lot of types of people that are not included in that. Mm-hmm. So when you're confronted with these two statements, it's very, it becomes very problematic very quickly. And the third one is, I think, we love this, but we don't love it enough. And it goes to Zuinin's point about what kind of theatre is seen as good theatre. And that's conditioned by our own understanding and our own knowledge. If you've never read a play from Alaska, you will not know if this is a good play or not because you've never experienced that type of theatre before. Mm. And when someone from that tribe or that nation or that understanding tells you why this theatre is written like this, the example that I'm thinking is very particular because there's something about the rhythm and the pauses and the silences and the way it's written that is very particular to the culture and the place in the world that that play comes from. Mm. But if you don't know that, you will think that it's not good enough. Mm. But you need to pause and investigate and understand and do a lot more work. So it's a lot more work to put that show on because mm. you have do it for yourself and your team and for your audiences that work of understanding yeah also I just think 
you know, the cross-pollination that could happen if we had a much broader variety of voices on our stages, like the inspiration we could draw from different traditions and cultures would so enrich the type of work we put out here in the UK, I find, that it's really the last opportunity that they don't risk it. I hope they will. I hope they will start to. Absolutely. And the question that I always come back to is who benefits from the status quo? Every time we're kind of like in opposition to something or we feel that it's not quite right, I always go back to who benefits from that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad we're going down all these avenues with you too to hone in a little bit more on your personal journeys. Laura, you're a theater maker with a background in political sciences and European studies. You've worked in France, Bosnia, and the UK, of course. Can you talk us through the highlights and challenges of your professional journey so far? Oh, wow. (laughs) I guess I was very lucky to have a family in the background that believed in the importance of education and sacrificed a lot for my brother and I to have that education. So I would like to take the opportunity to thank my mom and dad for that, because that allowed me to learn from different places in different cultures. And I've been an immigrant since I was born because of the circumstances of my family in traveling. So I'm very lucky in that aspect that I learned and worked in different cultures. And I think that makes me the person that I am today and being able to do the type of work that we're doing with Global Voices highlights for me have always been working with people that are different than me because I have a natural curiosity of wanting to understand and actually theatre has really helped me empathise and you know walk if not a million miles like at least a couple of hours in in someone else's shoes and understand their Mm. point that's why for me theatre is so important because I I will never be a black person. I will never be, you know, like there's some experiences that will never be mine because of who I am and my past and my ancestry and and my understanding of the world, you know? So how can I live that so that I can be a better person and be more aware of ultimately who I am and how I can contribute to the world for it to be a better place? And the challenges, I guess, There's some practical challenges of being an immigrant, and that's a lot of what we've been exploring with migrants in theatre, from paperwork and being, you know, afraid of messing it up and therefore encountering problems and being sent back home, which I think is kind of something that you always have on your mind. Mm -hmm. Also, it's uh, sometimes gets quite lonely because you don't know the scene, you don't know the things that that we talked about, the systems and the conveyor belts, and you don't really understand those. And you're maybe from another country coming over here and you have to build yourself up from the ground up, right? Mm. And that's quite challenging and sometimes quite frightening. Yeah. Yeah, that resonates very much. And Zuning, you are a theatre director, writer and facilitator, and you trained on the Tamasha Theatre Directors Programme and hold an MA in text and performance from Rada and Birkbeck. Can you also tell us a bit about the highlights and main challenges of your career so far? Sure. In some ways, very similar to Laura, collaboration has definitely been, I think, one of the central highlights with the people I've met things we made together that sort of like intangible magic in the room I think it's always one of those things that brings me back to theater I actually only did the MA after I worked in theater for a few years so I sort of had um 
almost like a retrospective view on it. So when I came to the MA, I knew what kind of artist I wanted to be or that I already was and what I wanted out of it and as what the gaps were in that education. Mm-hmm. And I was in a way lucky because when I first started out in my very self-taught start of the theatre career, that I worked with a lot of professionals who knew what they were doing, who were very generous with their time and their knowledge. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, I knew that I didn't know much of anything, but I knew everyone I worked with knew what they were doing. So a lot of my practice was then shaped by opening the floor and giving the space over to other people in order for them to bring their expertise mm-hmm. into the room. And as a result, there's been all kinds of really amazing ideas and collaborations and things that we've discovered together as a result of many people essentially being able to step into the space and just share the skills that they had and the imagination that they could bring to the room. So that's definitely been really good. And also, I think in terms of the work that I've been able to do, the specific kinds of stories that can be told Especially in the UK where I think we don't acknowledge enough that it is still a very privileged place in which to make art and to tell stories where there is a lot of freedom of expression. You can create a lot of provocative work about a lot of topics that in other countries, I think. And I have worked on a few of these stories where I'm not sure if I had been in the country of origin, I would have dared to do it just because I can't guarantee the safety of my team. Right. Or I'm afraid that there may be some backlash from the government. We may be blacklisted. Mm. There may be like people with violent intent, things like that, that I'm not saying they don't exist in the UK, but that the risk of that is on a very different scale to what it could be somewhere else. Yeah. That's definitely a sort of freedom that I do enjoy and as a privilege in the UK. And it's important to me because of the very social political nature of the work that I do as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In terms of challenges, this is a lot. I think also very much around learning to navigate the theatre industry. I didn't come from arts background. I'm the first person in my immediate family to mm. do anything related to this and to have an arts degree mm. and also to just like be in this really fluctuating freelancing position. Yeah. So a lot of that has to be learned over time. I think there's also a lot of general life challenges, especially to do with like settling in the UK that we don't necessarily acknowledge in theatre just because like migrant experiences are so minimal already in terms yeah. of like being understood in theatre. A lot of things to do with, I think, at least for me, definitely with like loneliness, homesickness, mm. just dealing with very small, subtle, cultural difference things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, and just having to learn like how do you pay your taxes in this country versus the other country, like very basic stuff that eventually mm. you sort out yourself. But there's also always a lot of ambiguity around a fluctuating home office situation as well that I had to track throughout my time when I was still studying while making theater and working in theater. It's those things that don't necessarily translate to a quantifiable, like this is how it affected my career. But definitely these are challenges like the financial and emotional labor that you spend on your visa and making sure that you don't get deported is something that someone with a British passport will never face in their theater career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you both mentioned migrants in theater, which is a terrific movement that emerged during lockdowns last year. Migrants in theater is a movement made up of first-generation migrants, theater artists, and theater companies who are campaigning to increase representation of first-generation migrant artists in British theater. How did this come about and how did you get involved with the project? 
It was about summer of 2019 where us as Global Voices Theatre met with some other migrant theatre makers, including the people at Foreign Affairs, Legal Aliens, and a couple of others, like Cut the Court. Essentially, it was a connecting point for us where we were sharing our various experiences as migrant theatre artists, both the similarities and the differences as well of the challenges that we were facing and the difficulty of making work as a migrant artist the extremely limited, pretty much non-existent infrastructural support and understanding from most of the industry. And we were discussing ways in which we could bring this to the wider attention. One of the ideas that was proposed was to do a town hall with um, several key companies and organisations and afterwards work with them in order to help build in more structural understanding and support. Then the COVID-19 pandemic happened. We set up a monthly Zoom call with migrant theatre makers, which was quite well attended from month to month. It happens on the first Wednesday, usually, of every month, and it's mm-hmm. still ongoing. So with the migrant theatre makers, we started connecting with each other. We did a survey about the challenges that people were facing, things that people wanted, just getting kind of like a lay of the land, statistically speaking, from everybody and from there, we started to get more momentum and we created a London town hall in October of 2020. That one was, again, very well attended. We had created what we call a foundational bundle where we compiled essentially an overview of the movement, our history, who is considered a first-generation migrant, why we chose the word migrant, our relationship to other social justice movements, our offers and action points as migrants, what we hope we can contribute to and gain and be supported in this industry. And afterwards, we are essentially working with quite a few key venues, hopefully to support their development of Mm -hmm. this support, because it's in a way both a two-way process. A lot of us are, a majority of us, in fact, are freelancers who may run very small companies and what needs to be changed on a structural level for migrant support, especially with Brexit now, the change in visa status of a lot of European artists. The threat that migrants always have is that we will leave the country and then be unable to keep making work. So there is no way for further artist development and support if you can't retain the artists in the country. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the weight of this needs to come from bigger organizations, bigger companies that have the the power and the weight to help make residency happen as well as to make support happen on various managerial levels within the company as well as on like programming levels in artistic support levels yeah yeah so we are working with various venues in the midlands and in london and hopefully we are planning more in the future with scotland's north of england other regional parts of the uk as well as with like drama schools and so on to kind of have a re-evaluation of what the British quote-unquote theatre system looks like and where migrants sit within that ecosystem because we are part of the British system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I just want to take a moment to applaud you for this initiative because when I first came across it, it resonated so much and the way you described the main points of what you're all about and how much I saw myself reflected in that and it had been such an isolated space to be in to suddenly see that so many people are going through the same thing was very comforting and and encouraging. That's definitely such an important thing right because 
we're here chatting to you, but, you know, standing by our side are 15 or more people who are on the working group, all donating their time for free, doing it because we've all experienced these things that Zunin just mentioned. And then there's another, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people around the country that, as you say, are, are hearing that and saying, oh, it's not just me. Yeah. yeah. And I always make the parallel with when I was younger with feminism, where mm. the penny dropped and I was like, oh, do you mm -hmm. mean this is not just me? And there's all the hundreds and thousands and millions of women that may have felt that and been in this situation. And it's not me that is the problem. And I think a similar personal process happened to me about my immigration background. I've just always said, this is part of who I am and this is how it is and there's nothing you can do about it. And suddenly talking about this with other people, with more intersectional kind of challenges and backgrounds is like, oh, wait, there is something that we could do. And the minimum thing that we could do is actually get together because the strength in those numbers and support each other is so important. And then from that place, we're unstoppable. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Such and it's undeniable for the industry and the companies as well, the more established British companies, local companies. It's undeniable for them that there is this issue, seeing the results of the survey and seeing the amount of voices that are coming through and being given this platform through MIT. So, yeah, it's a really heartwarming and encouraging thing to see. I'd now like to expand a little more on each of your backgrounds and how each of you ended up settling or at least working more in the UK. So starting with you, Laura, you were born in Bulgaria, but you also lived in Spain, Argentina and France before moving to the UK. So could you tell us more about your early life and your education? Absolutely. Yeah, I was born in Bulgaria and grew up in North Africa, Nigeria, and Tunisia before mm. moving to Spain, where, as I normally say, I became a person there because it was by teens <laughs> and went to university to study in France because since Tunisia had been in the French system and as I mentioned before my parents were very committed to you know for them education is everything so they sacrificed a lot to, to be able to invest in that I guess and I didn't know what I wanted to be when I was at uni so I chose a career that is flexible and is about everything and nothing at the same time which is political science <laughs> and I also grew up in a culture that says that you can't be an artist for real like come on you, right. you do that as a hobby but you can't be a theater maker you have to be someone with a career in a suit you know mm -hmm. that's how I grew up so <laughs> I went off to be a, a political scientist whatever that means and part of that program was spending a year abroad and I went to Argentina because I was learning about political science with a focus on Latin America and it was a great experience great opportunity to live in a different culture experience art in a different way because I had freedom to sign up to the classes that I wanted there was a minimum of hours but apart from that so I did directing course I uh, did contact improv I was in basements in houses occupying talking about Marxism and punk and whatever things that mm. might probably my parents never expected to happen but um, <laughs> very formative in kind of broadening my horizons and that social political theater making that is so characteristic in Latin America and in Argentina in particular mm. was really like in tune with kind of I was learning about political science and about how societies are organized and how 
fucked up everything is. And I was learning about how other artists are processing even deeper injustices and dictatorship and censorship and how they're telling those stories. And I was like, wow, this is what I want to do with my life. Faith has always been there. I really want to embrace it, but I'm scared. I don't know what to do. So I applied to continue learning because it was available to me and it was a privilege to be able to continue my education and being in a space where I was learning. And my program was meant to bring me back to kind of the mother university, Sciences Po in Paris. And there I got rejected from the communication school because I thought I wanted to do communications. I got rejected. I had nowhere to go. So I applied to the only thing that didn't have economics because I couldn't bear study economics uh-huh. the European studies course and I didn't want to be in Paris because who knows why but I was like ah no compared to Buenos Aires Paris is a dump <laughs> I was I was in my early 20s and I was a bit like whatever um, and so I applied this double degree because it was like oh if you do this you can stay one year in Paris and go to London and I was like London school there's a London bridge there. Let's do that. <laughs> and little did I know that I was going to be having to pay full work fees as a EU citizen. And at that time, I, I paused for a moment and I was like, should I do this? And everyone was like, you're fine. You're a political scientist graduate. You're going to get a cushy job in the European Commission and you're going to pay off that loan for two, three years. You're going to be mm-hmm. great. And so I came to London with like, yeah, probably the commission is a cool place to make change, right? Yeah. And I realized that that's not at all what I want to do. After I finished my year in London, I was homeless for a moment. I was couch surfing. I was in deep existential crisis, as you were, towards mm-hmm. your mid-20s. And I decided, look, I want to stay here in London. I'm seeing people make a living. Or I thought it was a bit of a mirage, but I was seeing artists being artists for real and being my age and I was like well actually maybe this is possible after all and I had the great chance to bump into Casa Latin American Theatre Festival and I came through their doors and it was like being in Argentina and it was warm and people were friendly and they were talking to me and I wasn't in grey London anymore and so I volunteered with them and at a key moment they called me and said look we've got an admin job we're funded by the Arts Council for a few months. Do you want to take it? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And from then on, I never left the UK. Wow. There's a gazillion other things that happen and another bunch of assumptions that got shattered. And- <laughs> <laughs> wow. And out of curiosity, how many languages do you speak? About five. Wow. Four, definitely four I can do business in. And then a bunch of others where I can just like get a free drink or, or free meals. Wow. Which ones are they? Bulgarian, English, French, and Spanish. I'm fluent in, and the rest is Portuguese and Italian. It's quite rusty now. And I did a few years of Turkish and a mm. few months of Japanese before I had to go to Japan for work. Wow, fantastic! Now, as for you, Swining, mm-hmm. you were born in Malaysia. Is that also where you grew up? And well, could you also tell us more about your early life and education until you came to the UK? Mm-hmm. It's much steadier, I think, than Laura's extremely colorful history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've lived in Malaysia most of my childhood and actually most of my teenage years, although that was a bit bit of like a weird 
sort of gap in the middle. I split my teenage years in Singapore, which was across the causeway. Mm -hmm. So I live in the south of Malaysia in Johor, which is not the capital. So there's a fairly all right, comfortable kind of place, but very, very new. So for instance, 20, 25 years ago, everywhere that I live now used to be a plantation. Only people who worked on plantations would be in the state. And there's been like a massive amount of construction and urban development that has changed the skyline of the city, Mm -hmm. even just in my lifetime. So, you know, like extremely old ancient cities, like the kind that you see everywhere in Europe are a revelation all the time to me. Mm. I, I spent about six years going back and forth between Singapore and Malaysia when I did my secondary school years and high school in Singapore. This was mainly because both my parents were educated at least partially in Australia and they came from what in the period of Malaysian history is known as like English education. So they spoke English very fluently alongside the other languages. Therefore, I spoke English really fluently. But in Singapore, that was an asset. In Malaysia, this is not quite an asset. So went over to Singapore. That was actually where I first experienced the sensation of being a foreigner, of being a migrant. Because Mm. in Singapore, they have very, very clear stipulations for if you are a citizen, a permanent resident, and a foreigner from an ASEAN country versus from a non-ASEAN country, you access very different resources. Mm. And also in Singapore, I did have a very good education there because Singapore's standards of education is extremely high. Mm. But because I, I was very much inclined to reading to arts as a kid, this could not have sustained me in Singapore. Singapore is a very meritocratic, economics-based country and it's very much, you know, if it doesn't feed you, then it's worthless. So, right. yeah, <laughs> the arts definitely fell under the it doesn't feed you category of right. Um, right. things that you wanted to do. So, <laughs> there were good years, I think, in Singapore. I, a lot of the way I write now, any sort of linguistic eloquence or whatever that I might have definitely came from, like, my time there. But I wasn't, like, I was quite glad to leave Singapore at the point where I did for the UK. I didn't get to see a lot of theatre or the arts when I was in Malaysia and Singapore. Mostly it was like the big West End shows that travelled to the capital or when they went to Singapore, I would catch them on occasion at times. Mm. When I was 13, I think, I saw... There was only one very memorable local play that I saw that I still remember to this day, which was Emily of Emerald Hill. We actually read excerpt of it for Global Voices. I was very happy to see it at that time. Mm -hmm. So It's like part of the Singapore canon played in a gender band way by Ivan Hing of Wild Rice Theatre at that point. And it didn't make a huge impact on me in the moment, I don't think. But it was one of those things where like the memory of his performance was so powerful that mm. even years after that, I can still like remember him on stage and his mannerisms, the way he delivered it. There was like a bit of the magic of live performance from the big shows that came over. They always sort of lingered with me, but it was always that thing of like, you see people on stage or you see things on screen but you don't necessarily reflect that that is something that you could do yourself Mm. or something that you could access it was just the thing that like other people did in other people's societies but not here necessarily but then it changed because i came to london there's a whole conversation underneath this about like the relationship between commonwealth countries and the power dynamics between the global south and the global north and how we all feel like in order to achieve anything, we would have to leave the country. Mm-hmm. Whether you return to the country or you immigrate somewhere indefinitely mm-hmm. for the future, 
that the country of origin doesn't sustain you mm. and you would have to go elsewhere to be sustained. That is a whole other conversation that I can have. And mm. it's still an ongoing discussion that I'm navigating because I do think eventually that like nothing is going to grow if no one is there to grow it. But you also yeah. have to navigate yourself, like paying your own bills, being able to send money home to your family, being able mm. to make the work. Where can you make the work that you want to make, for example? Like hmm. Singapore is a pretty good place now to make a lot of art. There's a lot of funding for a lot of things, but you have to comply with national arts restrictions. So for instance, if you perform for general audiences and you want to do something that is a queer piece of theatre, that's going to be very, very contentious because it doesn't fall under the guideline of like reflecting a normal way of living in society, for instance. So it's all these hmm. like really small things to navigate as well. And I think when I was in London, there was the freedom to be able to experience all that, not necessarily with all the the expectations that were back home. And I was very similar to Laura. My parents also really highly valued education as a way to open doors, open opportunities for the future. I was very lucky that they were very supportive of my decision to do a degree in something they understood nothing about halfway across the world. Mm -hmm. I did a liberal arts degree in King's College for my undergrad. And in between that experience, a lot of art forms, a lot of workshops, events, shows, pretty much everything flows to London. So there's just opportunity to live everything all the time. Mm. So in a way, that gave me a lot of the skills and the knowledges and opened the doors that I have today. Mm. And I think as well, I was a comparative literature major when I was in London and my focus was Arabic literature with a specific focus on Egyptian and Palestinian lit as well as speculative fiction and post-colonialism. And I think a lot of that, even though I didn't carry necessarily the books or like specific skills into the rest of my work, I think a lot of the learning that I did at that time in undergrad did shape the kind of stories that I went on to tell in theatre. So it was, in a way, still good that I had took a slightly more circuitous route back in before I did formal theatre training. And that helped me clarify, I think, a lot of what was the kind of art that I wanted to make. Yeah, for sure. So could you tell us how you felt received at first in the UK, both within and without the industry? I think even from the very start of my theatre career, I worked with very specific communities in my focus, and we collaborated on very specific projects telling stories from those communities. And usually this has in some way overlapped with either issues that I cared about a lot or communities that I'm already a part of. And therefore, I did feel not necessarily a complete sense of belonging, but I think I've been quite lucky to have felt mostly quite accepted in the projects and in the communities that I moved in. And that's been quite good so far. Hmm. I think in the wider industry, there's definitely a sense of kind of like banging on a glass ceiling and trying to get in or banging on the door and yeah. not necessarily hearing someone respond from the other side. And I think that's both to do with being a migrant, but also just generally being part of intersectionally various marginalized communities. But definitely, I think with the migrant identity that there was, for me, a very huge sense of urgency in making work and developing professionally because I was just extremely aware that my time in the UK is and always will be limited unless I gain citizenship. So it was always, you have to do everything right now because if you don't, then if three years down the road, you're in another country and you don't get to do this anymore, then you're going to regret it. 
So that definitely drove a lot of, I think, both the amount as well as the kind of work that I was taking for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Outside of the industry, I don't think I mingled a lot with wider British society. I guess <laughs> I say that. But mostly because I've only been in the UK about like five years-ish. And it mm-hmm. takes time to grow local connections, to like get to know mm. your neighbors, to build those like very local connections. And in the span of these five years, I've moved house like three, four times. So I've not really been able to put down roots in a very specific community way. Mm-hmm. Like mm. just in terms of like people I might know. The people that I take with me are like, I usually work colleagues who have become closer friends or people from university who also are slightly more transient in their everyday behavior. And I also have been lucky to have a lot of friends whom I carry forward from other parts of my life and are not restricted by geography. So people whom like I have calls with very often, we do watch parties together, stuff like that. And that's usually where my inner circle of community comes from. Mm. Hopefully with time, there's also slightly broader knowledge and understanding of being part of British community, I suppose. But I've not really built that yet, I think. Right. Right. Thank you. Well, Laura, I'd like to ask you the same question. How did you feel received here at first in the UK? It's a funny one for me because when I first came to finish my degree, I was like, oh, I'm going to do this one year thing and then I'm going to go somewhere else because I was on a cycle where I had been one year in Buenos Aires, one year in Paris, one year in London. And the next thing was like, who knows? The first year, I never really stopped thinking about how people were receiving me, to be honest. I was at the LSE. I was studying there and I didn't really make many friends. I knew a couple of people from before who were in my double degree. So I really didn't stop to kind of put roots down, as it were. Hmm. Um, And it was only when I kind of realized that I needed to make some choices because the path kind of stopped and it was up to you to lay it towards what you wanted to go that I kind of paid attention to that. And I think my memories, my fonder memories at the beginning was actually being really welcomed at Casa Latin American Theatre Festival. And there were people that, like me, were from different backgrounds, were passionate about theatre, were passionate about social and political work, and were passionate about being welcoming and putting on a good party. And I think that's really important. It felt really difficult at the beginning And most of my friends were people who are not British, you know, through a new university and contacts and then working in the hospitality sector, mostly with all immigrants. So a very long time, I didn't really know many people from the UK. Yeah. And probably I met my partner who is British. Industry and non-industry, I always felt that people were much colder than perhaps the cultures where I grew up in. Mm. As Bulgarians, we're quite direct. We're not going to like butt around the bushes. So that is a massive clash with stiff upper lip and being polite the English way. Mm-hmm. And in Spain, you're much more kind of outdoors and warm. And and again, quite direct Latin American culture, very, very open as well, very tactile, very warm, very different to kind of what felt Britishness to me anyway. Yeah. So it's always difficult. You kind of like never know if people are just being cold or they don't like you or or they're just being super ultra polite and you're being a bit inadequate and you don't know and then you learn and you go okay this is how you talk and this is how you you get seen you know but there was a couple of situations where I felt really misunderstood and again I thought it was my fault 
because you are the foreigner. Mm. You are in someone else's house. Mm. So you need to know what the rules are. It's on you. And again, going back to my earlier point, it's not until you start talking to people that are living the same situations that you understand that it's not about you, or at least it's as much about you as the other person. Yeah. And if we believe in like a cross-cultural international society, which especially in London, where 40% of people are born abroad, is the case. For sure. Like it or not. For sure. Then everyone needs to work harder to be open and welcoming and live with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Laura, we've touched on this quite a bit already, but you've worked very internationally. And based on your perspectives, what do you think the biggest weaknesses are of the UK culture sector? And what do we need to do better? One of his weaknesses is this inward-looking self-belief that is a world-leading culture and industry and there's a lot of people that are questioning that don't get me wrong Mm. but I think that belief that lack of being humble you miss a lot by believing that you're the best yeah at everything Mm -hmm. you just miss opportunities to grow learn connect right and we're all about this we're all about learning connecting and collaborating I think it's weakness as well is that beyond the industry itself the government and people in charge don't understand or have chosen to disbelieve the importance of art and creativity in everyone's life. And don't forget that that's Article 27 of the Human Rights Convention. Art and creativity, access to culture is a human right. Mm. And I think the way it's funded, the processes at play make it an industry. Going back to my earlier point of it's a machine and a structure. And therefore, when there is a machine and a structure, there's a lot of things that, again, are left out. So it generates a lot of inequality. And COVID has shown it stuff that we knew that this cultural industry is very unequal and relies on the free labor of a lot of people, most of them being people of color, LGBTQ+, people who have dependents, disabled people. Mm-hmm. And I know both of you have alluded to this a little bit earlier, but of course, the last few years have been hugely politically divisive in the UK. And I'm thinking particularly of Brexit and everything that's happened since then. Could you both just reflect on the impact that's had on you both personally and professionally? On a sort of material level, I guess it hasn't affected me quite as much as it's about to affect a lot of European artists. Just directly speaking, because I was already under the international entrance requirements. Although me and everyone else will necessarily be affected when we work with European artists and when we consider doing work in the rest of Europe. Like for instance, there was a Global Voices pipeline project that we were thinking about in relation to Europe. We've put it on hold for a little while while we focus on other things. But it's one of those things where we have to now reevaluate in light of the new policies that will be emerging about how we can collaborate with continental Europe from now on. And definitely since the entire affair started, there has been rampant increase in a very anti-migrant sentiment mm-hmm. with pretty much all of mainstream British society, which luckily I don't interact with that often. But 
<laughs> but certainly it's those things that you see on very fundamental levels with the way the home office phrases its demands and keeps changing them with the way employers are reevaluating how they recruit for people and who they want with people that you talk to on the street, on the bus, and how they occasionally just say something and you're like, oh yeah, like this is something that has sort of been internalized on a societal level. Mm-hmm. And Laura? I guess there's the personal side and then there's the more professional side and they're obviously super interlinked. But Brexit and this anti-immigrant rhetoric comes into a history of several years of hostile environment. I just want to note here that it is specifically Theresa May's Home Secretary tenorship that led to a lot of these policies. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, it's kind of one of the symptoms. It's not the disease if you see what I mean. And it's still going to be unfolding. And I think one thing that I mentioned before was the fact that as a European immigrant, you are on a regime, this settled status, that it's electronic. So there's not something material that you have. And that's been heavily criticized. There's a lot of European, especially vulnerable people who are maybe not able to access that status. Yeah. Obviously, personally, as a European immigrant, there's always at the back of your mind a bit of insecurity. And on the professional side, as Union mentioned, how we go about working with people outside the UK might be in question. And one particular point that I'm quite uneasy with is how all the cultural players are now very worried about Brexit because they, as British citizens, cannot tour as they used to before. Mm-hmm. And I feel that I didn't have that support and those allies weren't around when Brexit was voted in 2016. Mm-hmm. And I feel that, you know, I wish they had been more vocal and more supportive of European immigrants. And again, Brexit is only a symptom, I think, of a much larger disease. Mm-hmm. And it's a symptom that comes on the back of years and years of hostile environment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been a very challenging, certainly the last kind of 10 years for the migrant community in the UK. And of course, you know, for decades before that, on similar lines of sort of challenges that we're facing personally and professionally, obviously, COVID has been devastating to the industry and to many, many individuals across the globe. How has it affected you personally? And how have you been faring for the past year? So this is one of those things where the answer changes on a day-to-day basis sort of thing. It's kind of like everything is terrible, but also nothing is because it's all in suspension. I guess just on the health level, my immediate family and friends have been quite lucky in that. I, I do know of some people who have gotten COVID and sort of managing the after effects from it. But luckily no one extremely close to me has passed away as a result. So we were lucky in that aspect. I think for the industry was, I think, a much needed moment to be forced into suspension and then to have to reevaluate everything from the ground up. And it shouldn't have been something like a pandemic had to force us to do all of that extremely necessary work. But it was the thing that did, in fact, put everything to a stop and allowed people to reflect and rebuild. And in some terrible cases where they couldn't do that to have collapsed because they couldn't sustain it. Mm. But in cases where, especially with bigger buildings and companies who do have the resources but have always just been looking at 
their next season, at programming the next thing, at managing like audiences and ticket levels and all that. I do think that it has been a year where a lot of people both have and also have claimed to have done a lot of reflection and sort of like unlearning and learning everything mm. that was already rotting within the industry. And mm-hmm. I think very soon when everything opens up again and in the next few years, as everyone sort of takes stocks of what the new landscape now looks like, we'll see if any of that time has actually been put to meaningful use and if there have been actions and opportunities and infrastructural support that we will see going forward. I do hope very deeply that there will be, but it's one of those things where I think like only time will tell. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're right. It does, in some ways, provide a cover for people because people can say that they're doing the introspection and the rebuilding without necessarily having to do that. What about you, Laura? So I work part-time at Arts and Homelessness International, and that's been very, very busy, where we spend a lot of time advocating for the importance of the arts and creativity to combat loneliness and support people. It's been made apparent to everyone how important that is. And so a lot of the doors where we were knocking on are now opening and people are seeking our support. So that part of my work has been really, really busy. And because we haven't had opportunities to produce work with Global Voices live and we've chosen specifically not to do anything online apart from the anti-school, so not performances online, it has opened up to a certain point some time to do more advocacy, to be in the room talking to people. I took part of the freelance task force. And in a way, I kind of joined the dots with my political science background in a really funny way that I perhaps didn't expect. And it has helped me perhaps find my voice in like, what is the thing that I actually really care about? Because now is the moment to push that agenda, as it were, because of what Zunin was mentioning, people have had to evaluate because everything's collapsed. Hmm. Personally as well, I've taken some decisions, like I moved away from London, and I don't think that would have happened if London wasn't shut down. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I'm not missing it yet because we're still locked down and, you know, there's not all of the wonderful things that one normally does in London. So that for me personally has been a big thing as well. You've both touched on this quite a bit already, but could you tell me your hopes for the future, both in terms of your own professional journey, but also society at large? I hope that we don't forget this time, to be honest. I'm worried that people will be rushing to open up and do something, whatever that is, and kind of forgetting to be mindful, thoughtful and allowing time for reflection and feedback and asking questions like who's not in the room and what can be improved and who's struggling and how can we make sure that there is channels of communication that is greater co-creation and all these wonderful things that a lot of people are talking about now. I really hope that that sticks for Global Voices, I guess. I hope we make it through because we're only project funded and it's been really hard. And most importantly, like I hope that we're still in a way useful to artists and interesting to audiences. And I have great belief that theatre everywhere is so interesting and I still want to learn from it and know more of it 
And I just hope that people here in the UK will have the mental capacity and the capacity in their heart to be open to that because it's very hard to be open to others when your own backyard is on fire. And unfortunately, the way the cultural industries is built and the way this government thinks of the arts and artists means that our backyards are constantly on fire and the fire has just grown even more during this period. And for some people, the fire is bigger and bigger and we need to find a way for that not to be the case, right? Yeah. So these are my hopes. And for society at large, it's like the utopian, no nation states, no borders. <laughs> I still have hope. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure how to, uh, how to go on from that. Echoing a lot of what Laura's hopes are for Global Voices, that we make it through, that we can grow after this, that we survive Brexit and continue to be radical in the UK with international theatre. It's one of those things where it's like, we hope to exist in order for it to no longer be a necessity, that it will no longer be radical someday, Hmm. that we can have alternate ways of learning, that we can have international theatre in the UK, and it is not a big political issue of like being pro-anti-migrant or anything like that. And I think for the wider theatre, yeah, to not immediately rush back and be so glad that we can be together and that we forget what we have learned over the last year. I think also people say about how in the aftermath of the 1918 flu pandemic as well as other major 20th century events, there's this sort of cultural silence about it because there's actually such a massive loss of life that people don't want to talk about it. And Mm. I kind of hope that we don't fall into that because I do believe that there is a role for culture to play here in kind of processing all the grief and all the losses of the last year, both in terms of like the staggering loss of lives, but also mm. just to process the mismanagement that we have seen and the callousness from like so many people who are in power, especially people in government, about mm-hmm. uh, people's livelihoods, about people's lives in general over like the last few seasons to process the grief of a lot of people who have lost all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of pathways, the dreams that they would be climbing up towards that they now have to build again from the start. I think there's a community space that theatre can hold here, and I hope that when we come back, we will remember to process that in some way. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really powerful and a really important note to end on see this is where i wish we could just go to the pub and carry on i know absolutely yeah (laughs) one day one day well thank you both so much for giving us your time today and for talking to us about some really you know your incredible work that you're both doing at global voices theater and elsewhere and talking about how we can make the industry a better and more welcoming place it's been it's been really fascinating Thank Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. To find out more about Laura, Swaining, and their work at Global Voices Theatre, please check out the links in this episode's show notes. You've been listening to Migratives, a podcast produced by Woven Voices. Migratives is created and hosted by Nadia Cavell, Zachary Fall, and Ben Weaver-Hanks. Our music is by Guy Hughes. And our artwork is designed by Lucy Stapleton-Smith. To support the podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe on the platform of your choice. And to find out more about our work, follow Woven Voices on social media. Or check out our website, wovenvoices.org.